Do you find that today you're pulled toward newer, better, bigger things? Is your world driven by getting to the next success, to the next win, to the next upgrade? Do you struggle to find satisfaction, contentment, and consistency? An effort to stay ahead in the game is debt building up around you. Are you out of energy? Are you out of hope? What if you were able to let go of that feeling to strive for? What if you could live in a place of peace, knowing you were taken care of? What if you no longer needed to worry about measuring up? What if living with less is actually living with more? We played that video the last several weeks intentionally, very intentionally. In fact, how many of you, uh, when you see things like that or even watching that video, as the music gets louder, the, the drum gets louder, the clock is, the, the, the money amount is spiraling out of control. How many of that stresses you out a little bit? Just watching it just stretches you out a little bit. Okay, yeah. Um, and then right in the middle, you don't even notice the transition in the numbers, really, until it starts getting a big difference. But immediately it starts going right back down and eventually goes all the way. And the music changes. It gets softer. Your heart slows a little bit, okay? All of those kinds of things. That is offered to you through the peace that you can find in Christ and the advice which he has given us in regards to our finances. How many of you have ever gotten that bill in the mail, that unexpected bill, and your heart just kind of stopped because you have absolutely, just raise your hand, seriously. How many of you know, we've gotten it. have no idea how on earth that's ever going to get, get paid. Or your check was supposed to be deposited on Friday. And it didn't. And it doesn't get in until Monday now, like mine this last Friday. Yeah. Yeah, that happens, doesn't it? And what do we do? Yeah. Oh, no, I can't. Oh. Yeah, that's the state that we live in. Hopefully on your way in, each, each family uh, in your bulletin, there's a, a sheet that we put together. It's actually a supplemental sheet. If, if we were doing this as a whole church with small groups and things like this, this would be your small group guide that we would send home with you. So it's just an additional resource to the materials that we're covering based on the book that this goes with. So hopefully you'll find that useful. Let me know if you do. I'll definitely make more copies next week for the next chapters for next week. But that's what this little insert is for you. In regards to the book, last week I had a great conversation with a man sitting in the back of this room right now, Gail Hughes, on his way out. He had got one of these books, and on his way out last week he said, you know, I started reading that book. I said, yeah, that's awesome. He goes, I like it. He goes, I think my mom wrote it. I said, really? He's like, yeah, it's just so simple and so practical and so true. And I was like, yes, that's coming from, uh, I believe, a 92-year-old man with a bit of life experience. And so if you're skeptical whether or not this is any good or whether it's worth reading, I'll let his words speak volumes to you because I would trust him at this point. He's got a lot more life experience than I do for sure. Hopefully you got your lifesavers on the way in. I'm giving you permission to eat them in church unless you're a cruncher. Thank you for that family. That was my family that gave me that illustration right there. I appreciate that. Yeah, Corey, I, I really appreciate that. Anyway, um, whatever. 
enjoy. Uh, you don't get the, like, the full rolls of the variety of five flavors of Lifesavers anymore. You just don't, so I, I thought it would be fun. You'll understand why here in just a moment. All right, how many of us remember the Great Recession, as it was now called, of 2008? Does anyone remember this time? Now, if you don't remember or aren't familiar with it, this caused a huge amount of financial suffering across our country, and some of you are probably still recovering from that. This was actually the longest and deepest economic downturn our country has ever experienced since the Great Depression of 1929. It's a result of a subprime mortgage collapse. There's a lot of intricate things. Basically, it boils down to this. Banks got to the point where they were either unable or unwilling to allow people to borrow money, even those that were qualified to borrow money. There's a lot of complex factors behind it. Really, if you get to reading, it's kind of fascinating, but in a morbid kind of way, so maybe you wouldn't enjoy it. I'm not going to give you all the details. I'm going to simplify it for those that don't really care. Here's the thing. You remember the big giant car companies. Remember GM and Chrysler? They filed for bankruptcy. They both sought government bailouts in 2009, if you remember correctly. Consumer confidence obviously was severely damaged during that time period. As a result, a lot of Americans for a while chose to spend less with anticipation that there would be some harder times ahead. From the beginning of the recession in December of 2007 till its official declared end in June of 2009, the GDP, the gross domestic product of our country, declined by 4.3%. Unemployment increased from 5% to a high of 10% in October of 2009. Millions of people lost their homes, lost their jobs, lost their savings. The poverty rate in America went from 12.5% to above 15%. Some say even as high as 20% in 2010. Wealth that was lost in the U.S. was incredible. The stock market decreased by 57% from before that recession until it ended. A quarter of Americans lost an estimated 16 trillion, or Americans as a whole lost an estimated 16 trillion dollars, 16 trillion dollars in net worth. A quarter, 25% of U.S. households lost at least 75% of their net worth, their investments, their retirement accounts, and more than half lost at least 25% of those same things. And now what do we see? Our economy is doing what? It's going gangbusters. It's going crazy right now. When the recession ended in June of 2009, the stock market, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, closed at 8,500 points. Do you know what it was on December 31st of 2019? 28,462. That's more than three times greater than it was back then. The unemployment rate in our country right now is 3.5%. We don't even understand how low that is. That's beyond what the government considers full employment, if you didn't know that. Consumer confidence, up. Wages, up. But this is America, so that means spending is up as well. Consumer spending is up a lot. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But interestingly enough, the experts in the financial world don't believe that consumer spending is high enough at this point. Figure that one out. What it has done is it actually has returned. Consumer spending has returned to the level it was prior to the recession in 2007. School loan debt highest level in recorded history. There's more than $1.5 trillion in school loan debt 
out there right now. Consumer debt in the United States, that's me and you. Consumer debt in the United States just topped $14 trillion. We're always talking about the national debt and how irresponsible our government is. Guess what? We're trying to compete as consumers. We're at $14 trillion. The breakdown of that, $9.4 trillion of that are mortgage debt, $1.3 trillion in auto debt, and more than $1 trillion for the first time in our history, more than $1 trillion in credit card debt. Can you imagine the interest being made on that debt? So what are we doing as a church? <laughs> We're in a series called Too Much. Yes, learning to live with less in a land of more. And throughout this series, we're going to look at four basic biblical principles. That of gratitude today, contentment next week, humility in the week to follow, and finally trust on that final week. We're going to pair those principles up with four real-life simple applications. That of debt-free living, saving, budgeting, and then ultimately giving on that final week. See, God desires for his people to honor him in every single area of our lives, and that includes our finances. Now, a lot of churches will shy away from this topic. You hear people say, all the church does is talk about money. No, that's not the truth. All the church does is talk about Jesus Christ. And occasionally, we will talk about what Jesus Christ had to say about money because he had a lot to say. There is no reason not to talk about finances within the church. As a matter of fact, I would contend there's no better place than to in within the church, within the confines of God's word and his teachings to talk about finances. Our world would be a lot better off if people would listen. When I began to look at this and look at this series and I read this book, I really did begin to get excited and I wanted to share with you why I began excited. I began to get excited for the opportunities that lie in front of all of us if we're willing to practice these biblical ideals. I'm excited for the strengthened marriages that will exist because there is less financial stress in that relationship. I'm excited for the examples that you and I as parents will be setting for our children as they watch us try to implement biblical ideals into our finances to set them off on their own one day so they don't make the same mistakes that we did. I'm excited for the potential ministry growth that exists as a result of the investment that we can then make in each other, that we can make in this community, and that we can make around this entire world as the generosity of God is demonstrated through each of us as we give back to him what is rightfully his in the first place. And most of all, I am excited that our God, who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever dream or imagine, according to his power, is at work within each of us, and he is with us on this journey. Will you trust him with me? We are to be financially responsible. We have to learn to live out what the scripture teaches about money and the things that money can buy. In Romans 1.16, very, very famous verse, in Paul's book of Romans, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are not here either, nor am I to shame, ashamed to preach this good news of Jesus Christ, or as a preacher, I am not ashamed, nor will we apologize for preaching about money, because it's in there. More than 2,300 different references to money within the Bible. Jesus taught about money way more than he ever mentioned the word hell. So we should be mentioning the same thing in our services as well. 
I wish that I could say that in my lifetime, I have practiced these biblical principles to perfection. I stand before you as a person who has not, who is still working on this, still trying to get it right, still trying to make the right decisions all of the time. We are going through this with you. I am no better than any of you in this area of life, I guarantee it. But know this, as we are challenged to apply God's word, God is true to his word. God is faithful, more than faithful, as we read last week in Psalm 145, no matter what the future might hold for each of us. There's a simple formula that's recorded in the book that we're reading, and it's this. It's an improvement to our financial health. We take these four biblical principles, gratitude, contentment, humility, and trust, and we add those together with these four real-life practical applications, debt-free living, saving, budgeting, and giving, then that equals real profit. Now, unlike the prosperity gospel that is so very popular these days, we're not talking about you having lots and lots of money and being a multimillionaire. Might God bless you with that? Well, maybe so, and congratulations if he does. Well done. But for many of us, that probably isn't going to happen. Profit simply means something of value. And to be honest, profit probably isn't measured in terms of dollars and cents most of the time. But when our house, our financial house is in order, then what we'll find is that we'll have less arguments. <laughs> you ever been in a season where you didn't have arguments about money at home? There'll be less anxiety when those bills do come due. Our relationships will improve and more. When we admit that we do have too much in this world, and when we learn how to live with a little less in this land of more, then life really will improve for all of us. A couple reminders as we get started. Money will absolutely buy a really, really nice bed, won't it? But it won't buy you a second of sleep. Money could buy you all the books in the world, but it won't buy you a bit of intelligence. Money will buy you food, but it doesn't necessarily give you or cure your appetite. Money will buy a house, but it definitely won't make it a home for sure. Money will buy lots of amusements, but it won't buy fulfillment. Money will pay for your travel to get anywhere on this earth, but it will not buy your ticket to heaven. You see, real profit isn't measured in dollars. Why? Why are we doing this beyond the practical? Well, this is the reality. We're on a journey here at Berea to become a body of believers, a community of believers that God desires for us to be. We want this community to be outrageously generous, just like our Father. We want to be able to share with those that have needs, to support and help grow the kingdom of God, build the kingdom work of God, both here at Berea, in our community, and around the globe. And if we can get our financial houses in order, then we will be able to do every one of those things and immeasurably more as God promises. Now, on your way in, you received a role of lifesavers. If you don't know the history, a very brief one, they were created in 1912. They were created as a candy that would not melt in summer because all the candies on the market back then did. Now, for me, they still melt. I have a pack in my pocket right now. They'll probably be completely stuck together by the end of this service, but that's neither here nor there. Obviously, they derive their shape and their name from that circular thing that we throw out to people that are drowning, a lifesaver. You see them on ships, near pools, on lifeguard stands, and all those kinds of things. Keep that emblem, that idea of a lifesaver in mind as we read through the text today. For our text, we're going to go to the first half of the Bible. As a matter of fact, the first quarter of the Bible, we're going to go to the book of Deuteronomy, Old Testament today. So open your Bibles or grab one under the seat in front of you or open your phone. Any of those will work. We'll be through a few chapters in the book of Deuteronomy, starting with chapter 8. 
is where we'll begin. As you turn there, understand a few things. Moses is about to die. He's a very, 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 very old man at this point. And the Israelites are finally ready to move into the promised land. Moses has gathered the people together to provide them with his farewell sermon. But you see, Moses' farewell sermon wasn't a sermon. It wasn't two sermons. It was three sermons, all in one. Three whole sermons throughout the book of Deuteronomy that Moses spoke to the people. In particular, he was speaking to a generation of Israelites that were new. Their parents, their grandparents, their aunt and uncles, they've all passed away. That was the penalty for not obeying God earlier. None of them would enter the promised land. Moses was preparing them for moving day, if you will, when they the day when they would finally march into the promised land and take over. He knew that soon he would die and the younger generation would move into the land where they had never, ever been before. He spoke with passion. He spoke with clarity. He spoke with urgency. And throughout, he kept referring to God and how God was on display through this time that the Israelites were wondering for 40 years, how God was constantly on display to the Israelites. And so here's a beginning portion of what Moses said to the people. God gives. God gives is the theme. Chapter 8, verse 1. Be careful, be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Many of you recognize that passage. Jesus quoted that. Your clothes did not wear out in your wondering. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as man disciplines a son, so the Lord God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. God gives. God is generous, but let's be really honest. God isn't just generous. God is outrageously generous with us. His generosity was on full display amongst those Israelites as his people wandered in a desert wasteland for 40 years. Do you realize how many people he was taking care of? Literally millions. As Moses writes, he uses the pronoun you. That word you is plural. He's talking to all of the people of Israel. How many were there? We don't know exactly, but what we do know, when they left Egypt, there were 600,000 men plus women and children. We can make a safe assumption that there were equally as many women as men. The planet is still fairly balanced in that order. And then we can add to it children. And we know that Israelites had a habit of having lots and lots and lots of children, don't they? The reality of this particular group of people, they were birthed out of 12 sons of Jacob, right? So we know he had at least 12 sons. They didn't count the daughters back then. How many daughters did Jacob have? We don't know exactly, but there were a lot. So we're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of three to four million people that Moses is addressing. I don't know that we can comprehend those numbers. Think of it this way. That's three to four times the size of the population of Indianapolis, Indiana. If they were leaving Egypt, shoulder to shoulder, 50 people across, you would have a line of people 40 miles long. 
If they were all walking at two and a half miles an hour, it would take 14 hours for people to pass the same point from the end of the line to the beginning. I don't think we understand how God took care of his people. It would require 30 railroad boxcars of food per day to feed that amount of people. 300 tanker cars of water per day to give water to those people who are, by the way, now living in the desert where there is no water. Do you understand? It wasn't long before, after they left Egypt, people were running out of food, running out of water, the basic necessities of life. So what did God do? He provided for their needs when they were running out. Water, remember, came from a rock. Bread, manna came from heaven, morning after morning, and then meat. He delivered quail into camp daily, just enough. Don't take too much. Now, the fascinating thing is, how did, have you ever wondered how on earth did God do those things? Did it just miraculously happen? Well, yes and no. Yes, absolutely. It was a complete miracle. It's a miracle of nature that God provided for them. As a matter of fact, some of these miracles still exist within nature. God set things up to do it this way. They've actually studied the flight patterns, the migration patterns of the quail. And every fall, they fly from Europe and Turkey across the Mediterranean and land right there in that area. After they fly across the sea, one trip, no stopping, they're very tired. What do they do when they're very tired? They lay and they rest for a few hours. How easy would it be to go up and pick up quail to feed your family? God used the nature that he created to provide the miracles for his people. You can understand a little bit more. I think it makes it even more impressive that we can still observe some of those facts and those realities within his creation. God was simply being himself. God is a giver. From the opening pages of scripture, God started giving. He created this incredible earth and he said to Adam, I give to you every green plant for food. He gave the Israelites man a quail. He gave them shoes, clothing that didn't wear out in those 40 years of wandering. He gave them the pillar of fire by night to guide them, the cloud shade by day to protect them from the sun. He gave them the promised land. Throughout the Bible, we continually read how God gives, God gives, God gives, God gives, with the greatest instance of all being for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his one and only son to us. Incredible. Throughout the passage, throughout Moses' final sermon, he's using the word remember, 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 over and over and over time. Thirteen times, in fact, he uses that word. The Hebrew word for remember is zakar, to impress upon the memory, to mention, to record, or to commemorate. God was on display for his people. From the moment he brought them out of slavery in Egypt to when they were about to enter the promised land, he kept them alive. He was their life saver. You get it now. Good work. Deuteronomy chapter 8, God owns. God owns. Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 7. Read with me. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, deep springs gushing into the, out into the valleys and the hills, a land with wheat, barley, vines, and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce, and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. God owns every element of that. Can you imagine the vast difference from the wasteland they'd been traveling for 40 years? The only property these people that are entering had ever seen contained nothing. 
And they're going into a land that literally had everything they could ever need. Things were beginning to look up for the people of God for the first time in these 40 years. They saw the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel. They were about to leave their land of lacking and move into the land of plenty. Now, how was God able to be this outrageously generous with them? Well, he owns everything and he can do with it whatever he would like. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 50, verse 10, declares that the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills, a famous passage which we often quote. That's just a metaphor for God owns it all. It's all his. In verse 9, he tells the Israelites, you will lack nothing. All of your needs would be met by God, the owner and giver of all things. God was on full display for his people. And then comes the warning. God controls all of these things that he owns are his to control as well. Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 10. Now when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful, church, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and your gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Remember, he led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and its scorpions. He brought you water out of a hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and my strength of my hands have provided all of this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. It doesn't take long for you to look at our history and see how we were founded and what spirit we were founded in and how far we've strayed. Don't think these words don't ring true for us in America as well. You can't help but notice that the Israelites were about to experience what we'll call conspicuous consumption. It actually has a definition. We'll talk about it next week. Conspicuous consumption. And with the risk of gorging themselves on everything that was available to them in this promised land of plenty, Moses gave them some words of warning. When they feasted on the food, when they enjoyed their homes, when they accumulated much, they would be at risk to turn from God. While getting ahead in their life, their heads would get big, as they would think they were the reason they had so much. They thought it was their strength and their skill that produced all of this wealth. So God just wanted to go ahead and pre-remind them, if you will. Hey guys, no, no, that's me. I'm the one providing. I control it. I own it. If you notice in verse 19 and 20, God is sovereign. 
He causes nations to both rise and fall. After going through great suffering, the man Job, God's servant, said, The Lord giveth, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus references that God causes the sun to rise on the good and on the evil. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. God is sovereign. He gave the Israelites manna and quail. He could have stopped providing food for them at any point in time. He gave them this abundant land. He could have taken that abundant land away at any point in time, and ultimately he did, didn't he? Because they ceased to follow him. Moses told the people repeatedly that they were to obey everything that God had commanded them as an expression that they were fully committed to God and how they responded to his outrageous generosity indicated if God was truly their Lord and King or not. God put himself on full display. Now they had to respond. God gives, God owns, God controls. God revealed himself through all of these things. God was fully on display. So what about us? This is the Old Testament. Some people will tell you time and time again, this doesn't matter anymore. This isn't applicable anymore. I beg to differ because our God never changes. His word is true for all eternity. So how do we respond? God has revealed himself as the one who gives, as the one who owns, as the one who controls. And since God is that big word immutable, simply means God never changes. He is still giving, he still owns it all, and he is still in control. So how do we respond? Two simple ways. First, acknowledge. Acknowledge that that is in fact who God is, that he does control and he does own everything, and that he is the single source for everything that we have. There was an interesting little poll taken by an organization I'm sure you're all really familiar with, the British Nutritional Foundation, right? Yeah, you study a lot of their work, I'm sure. You can get on their website, they're real. They surveyed 27,500 kids, elementary and high school age kids, to find out where food come from. Where does food come from is the question that they asked. And so they began asking, a third of British elementary students think cheese is made from plants. Now we do have some cheese that's made from plants, but it tastes terrible. Sorry, those of you that like it. it it's awful. Don't, don't do it. According to that survey, beyond that, they think uh, 25% of them think that their fish fingers, I guess that's probably like our chicken nuggets, but anyway, their fish fingers are made from chicken or pigs. One in 10 high school students thinks tomatoes grow underground. The survey didn't help, help us understand that they don't have a clue where things like pasta and bread come from. A third of five to eight-year-olds think that they're made from meat. 19% of the age group re didn't realize that potatoes grew underground. 10% thought they grew on bushes or trees. That's tragic, isn't it? I mean, they don't even know where food comes from, but the reality is the bigger tragedy is probably none of them realize that God is ultimately the provider for their food. Man has very little to do with it. Too often as adults, our pride moves us to the belief that we are now the source for all that we have, that our skills, our knowledge, our hard work produce everything that we have. And if you go follow that line of thinking and present it to Jesus, Jesus would probably respond with something to the effect of, now are you sure that it's you <laughs> causing all of this? Remember, he told a parable about a man, a farmer, who thought he was the source of everything that he owned. Luke 12, beginning of verse 17. The farmer thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store this abundant crop that I have. 
So he said, I am going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, I have plenty of grain laid up for many years. I'm going to take life easy. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. God simply said to him, you fool. When we think we are the ones who are accumulating, when we are the source of our achievement, when we amass these possessions, wealth, and power by our skill, we have one name before our Lord and Savior. He calls us a fool. It seems harsh, but it's true. Because just as the Lord gives, the Lord can surely taketh away, can't he? We have to acknowledge that God is our provider. He gives us the ability to produce wealth, to earn a paycheck. He gives us the intellect, the skill, and the opportunity to earn money so that we can put food on the table, so that we can keep a roof over our house, and so that we can enjoy life. God is our life saver. We will have problems with money if we don't realize where it comes from. If we fail to acknowledge that God is the outrageously generous source of everything that we have. Until we do that, we will never get our financial house in order. As a matter of fact, I love it worded this way. That will never happen until we eagerly, excitedly admit that God owns it, that God controls it, and that he has given it to us. When we're excited about that reality, our perspective begins to change. We acknowledge God, but acknowledging isn't enough. Acknowledging is enough. After we acknowledge, now we have to act on that knowledge. We have to act on this. We have to respond in a God-honoring way. Think with me. God was outrageously generous with Adam and Eve, right? He told them, hey, it's all yours. Do with it what you please, except for this one tree. Just don't touch it. That's it. That's all I got for you. Everything is yours. And so what did Adam and Eve do? Hey, where's that tree? I want more. I want more than, God, I know you've given me every single thing on planet earth to be mine except for that one tree, but I really want that one tree. God, there's never enough. Where did that lead them? The Israelites didn't get it. God gave them the promised land full of all of these things from farms to houses to businesses and more, things they didn't even build themselves. What was their response Well, out of the 12 tribes, two and a half of them said, God, that looks awesome, but no thanks. We want to stay on the other side of the River Jordan. We're not even going into the promised land. What selfish, arrogant little punks, right? What were they thinking? Well, they were thinking they wanted what they wanted, not what God was providing. Ungrateful, unappreciative children. How often are we that way? Over Thanksgiving, we looked at the 10 lepers, which Jesus cleansed. And we learned that only one, 10% of those people completely healed, lives changed forever, came back to offer thanks to the source of their blessing. What's our response to God revealed in our lives? The God who gives, God who owns, the God who controls. Moses urged his people to remember, remember, remember how good the Lord is. 
And in this part of his sermon, he went on later to say in Deuteronomy 16, three times a year all men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And no man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord has blessed you. When the people gathered to worship God, they were not to come empty-handed. They were to bring an offering in the amount that corresponded to the way in which God had blessed them. It was called a tithe. When they were invited, when you and I today are invited to come over to somebody's house for dinner, what's the first question you always ask? What can I bring? Your natural response is thanksgiving, an opportunity to invest in, to give thanks for that opportunity to meet together. When we're served, especially well, at a restaurant, what do we do? We leave a tip for our waiter or our waitress, a tip of appreciation. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to serve and not to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus served all of us, not at a restaurant, but at Calvary. The Lord has blessed us in the here and now as well as the hereafter in heaven. How will we respond? With a tip? (laughs) or with a tithe. God is outrageously generous. How generous are you and I? Every morning, the Israelites woke up to God saying, good morning. Good morning, my children. Here's manna for you to eat. Here's quail for you to collect. Here's water from a rock for you to drink. Here's a cloud to protect you from the blistering heat of the desert. God was on display. God has not changed. Every morning, you and I get the blessing of taking another breath. We wake up, and God welcomes you to life. Good morning, my sons and daughters. I've given you life again today. I've provided you with the ability, the opportunity to earn money so that you can enjoy life. Even in this land here we call America, it's incredible. Yours is a good life, but the best life is yet to come when you come home to be with me. I love you. I'm providing for you. God is on display in your life. To what degree do we then put God on display? God gives, God owns, God controls. When we acknowledge, when we act accordingly, we are compelled, I love that word, compelled to live differently. And in our culture, there would be nothing more revolutionary than working to a place in our lives where we are debt free to live out the practical words of paul in romans 13 8 let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt of love to one another for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law have you ever wondered how do we fall into this debt trap that exists now there are emergencies that happen Some of you have probably had that happen in your life. Could have been a health crisis, could have been an accident or even a tragedy of some cause, some reason that that put a person into debt. That does exist. But if we're really honest with ourselves, that is not the rule. That is the exception to the rule, not the main cause. In chapter 7 of the book Too Much that you guys have, there's a simple illustration and acronym that we'll close with that we should all look at. The illustration is simply this. It's called Duck Syndrome. If you've ever watched a duck swimming along a lake or a pond, it's the most peaceful, smooth glide across that lake effortlessly, just moving across. But what you don't realize, if you don't know, if you look under the surface of the water, that poor little duck's feet are paddling frantically to make it look so perfect on the top. 
Does that portray our lives today? We live that same way. On the surface, our lives seem great. We seemingly have everything in order. That's why Facebook exists, isn't it? We post all our pictures of our perfectly wonderful life, the nice homes, the nice cars, the latest tech. But how many of us have actually financed all of that lifestyle with what we call debt here in America? Consumer debt now topping $14 trillion. It looks good on the surface, but we're struggling to pay our mortgage, credit cards, student debts, and other obligations. We're frantically paddling away under the surface. Now, I mentioned earlier, you know, our country loves debt, and so I found a way to actually pull up a live stream of the United States debt clock. It's probably playing right behind me right now. The numbers should be changing as you look at it, as debt just climbs and climbs and climbs. You can hop on their website. It's kind of fascinating to watch it for a little bit, and then you just start to freak out and turn the page, if you will. Um, But there it is. Over $23 trillion. Is it up to 160 again? It's not there. It's not working. Oh, that's what it was. There. Okay, anyway, um, when I, it is funny though. When I actually wrote this, it was it was uh, twenty three trillion one sixty and a bunch of change. And now I think it's just under twenty three trillion one sixty. So it does fluctuate in various directions, but it's usually going that way. In case you wondered, that's just how it is. Why? Why are we constantly doing this to ourselves? Why are we constantly seeking to buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even? No, and sometimes don't even like. (laughs) Well, you see, the reality is this. Wrong thinking leads to wrong living. And so this acronym is in that book. The word D, desire. I want it, and I want it now. Some of you might be familiar with that song from the 80s. I want it all, and I want it now. And guess what? We're in America, so you can probably have it financed. You see, someone will loan you the money. There's no self-control. Maybe the hardest fruit of the Spirit to put on display in our world is that of self-control. So we go into debt. To have it, the E in debt, entitlement. So many think that we even deserve what we want, regardless of whether or not we can afford it. We've heard of the American dream, right? So because we live in America, we're entitled to the American dream, so we pursue it. We finance it, and unfortunately for so many, that dream ultimately becomes a nightmare as all those bills begin to come due. Bigger and better. Do I need to say any more than that? I mean, this is reality in America, right? And absolutely the biggest weakness probably in my world. Sure, what I have works great, but (laughs) there's something better. Be honest, can a TV be too big? You, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you grew up with a little tiny box set. I guarantee you don't have one of those anymore. I, I don't care how old you are. I guarantee you don't have one of those little tiny screens, black and white, with the rotary dials. You don't have those anymore. They don't exist in your home. There's a reason for that. We live in America. That's why. In our world, as soon as we buy something, it's outdated. There's something new or something better, more features. And as I said before, there's always someone willing to finance it for you with interest, of course. The last one, the T in debt, taught In many cases, we've learned this behavior. It wasn't truly our own idea. Maybe we had parents that struggled with debt or friends and neighbors that seemingly have it all together like the duck, but we never saw the struggle that was beneath the surface until we began to pursue that same lifestyle. And this world debt has been normalized, even encouraged. If you've ever seen a college student's mailbox you know how it's encouraged with all of those credit card offers. It should not be that way with the people of God. So what do we have to do? Well, we have to repent, first of our sins. It is a sinful 
behavior for sure, but we need to change our minds. We've got to change the way we live. We've got to change the way we think about debt and the way we think about spending. Ramsey's course, Financial Peace University, will do that for you. If you have difficulties in those areas, please don't hesitate to sign up. There's nothing wrong. We've taken it ourselves. Anyone, even if you're in good financial standings, can benefit from that course. It's not just those that are in trouble that need to take it. There's an old saying that applies here. And just because we can doesn't necessarily mean that we should. (laughs) And that's definitely true in the world of finances. So here's three simple rules to close with. First of all, want versus need. Come on, we've been told that our whole lives, right? You remember your mama used to tell you that. You'd have your dollar going to the store. Do you really need that, Corey, (laughs) to pick on you? No, you don't need that. He he got me earlier, so I can get him back. Anyway, anyway, (laughs) okay, ask yourself two or three times. Ask your spouse, do I really need this? Probably the answer is no. Is God providing this for you? Is it truly a gift, or are you trying to strive and provide it for yourself? Second one, set a spending limit. I know a lot of couples here have done that. If you're married, so that you won't spend more than a certain amount without permission from your spouse. Depending on your income level, that might be as little as 10 or 20 bucks in a week. You know your budget? Hey, I can't really spend more than 20 bucks without calling my wife and making sure that we have it there to spend before I spend it. It might be $1,000 if your budget is greater. That's okay. Just have that line of communication and then stick with it. The best and last one, number three, wait. Wait. Did you know that time is the biggest deterrent for spending that exists? If you don't make that purchase in the moment, most of the time you'll never make the purchase at all. That's why those of you sorry in sales try to make that purchase happen as quickly as possible because you don't want them to change their mind. We're not trying to hurt salesmen, just be selling a product that people need and can afford and all those things and you'll be just fined. You see, there's so much more in there. There's so much more in this book, in chapter 7 even, that we were discussing. Hopefully, today has inspired you to continue reading, or if you haven't started yet, you don't have your book, you'll get one on the way out, start reading, because it's an incredibly good resource for you, and God wants this for you. It is his desire for your life. He does not want you to be enslaved to anyone for any thing. That is why he came to free us, to free us from the bonds of this world. And one of those bonds absolutely can be finances. Scripture tells us that a borrower is slave to the lender for a reason. And as you know, there are all kinds of freedoms found in Christ. And financial freedom is one of those when we realize that it's all his to begin with. And we're thankful for everything that he blesses us with. When we learn to be content with what we have, then we are then in turn able to worship through giving. Yes, I said that. You are able to worship, it's not just singing, through giving. It's a blessing to give. And every week as you receive your pay that you have earned, you take time to reflect that God is the source of that ability to earn, that God is the source for those finances. And you reflect, and before you do anything else, you joyfully return a portion of what God has given you back to him. When you begin to see life in that way, the peace that overcomes that checkbook is incredible. But the reality is the freedom begins with the ultimate freedom which is found in Christ, the freedom provided through the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who gave his life 
for you. And if you've never tasted that freedom from sin, that freedom from guilt, that freedom and mercy that he offers and ultimately that gift of eternal life, then you must do that first. And then God can begin to work in the other areas of your life where he needs to free you from the captives that exist all around. Here in a moment, we're going to go before Christ, and we're going to do two things. We're going to go before Christ, and we're going to break bread, and we're going to share in the broken body that he gave on our behalf and the shed blood that he donated on our behalf, the life that was offered for you and I so that we could live in freedom, not just in this life, but in the life beyond as well. Take time to reflect on what God gave you through this gift. Then that's immediately followed by an opportunity to reflect on what God has given us in this life, the finances, the resources, the things. To genuinely think about that through this series, we're going to be challenged in our giving because it is all God's to begin with. And how are we going to respond to this reality? How can we intelligently, how does God responsibly want us to respond to this opportunity? And a lot of times we don't even mention it in the church service, and quite honestly, that shouldn't happen because it's an opportunity to worship that oftentimes we overlook, and we should not do that. Let's go to the Lord. Father God, your word is incredible. The examples you've given us, incredible. The advice, the simple biblical advice that we have before us to follow in opposition to everything that the world teaches. Father, everyone in this place, everyone listening is in a different place in life financially. Everyone is in a different place in their walk with you. Some have not come to fully know you yet. They have not accepted your Lord, your Lordship over them. They have not come forward and be baptized in the waters for forgiveness of sins. Father, I pray that your spirit moves in them as this new year begins to make that decision as soon as possible to experience the freedom found only through your son's precious gift. But Father, for the the others of us that maybe accepted him long ago, we oftentimes are still bound by things of this world and finances can be one of them. Father, your word does hold the key to responsible living Nowhere in your word does it say to be ashamed if we make a lot of money or we don't. Father, your word only calls us to acknowledge the fact that you are the giver of all things and for us to return in thanksgiving from that which you've given us. I pray that your people are challenged to do just that in a new way as they consider what all you've given to us. Father, we could not be more thankful. As a matter of fact, our words are futile to express how thankful we are for all that you've given us. Father, may we worship in every way possible as we worship the opportunity to thank you for the sacrifice. We worship through our words, our songs, our reading, our study, our prayers, and Father, through our giving. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.